God and Other Delicacies has a weekly newsletter. If you'd like to subscribe, email me at godsdelicateshow at gmail.com and I'll put you on the list. Welcome to God and Other Delicacies. I'm Nicholas D'Augusto. Thank you all for being here. Today, I have the privilege of welcoming Anam Vadgama to the show. Anam is from Mumbai, India, but she has volunteered for good causes across the globe following her passion for social work and social activism. She graduated summa cum laude from Princeton University in 2018 with an AB in political science, and for her senior thesis, she examined the Clean India Mission a national campaign launched in India in 2014 to curtail illness and improve the environment through better sanitation. Currently, she is a team member at The Life You Can Save, the primary charity I support, which focuses on alleviating the suffering of those in extreme poverty. In fact, I just met Anam a couple of days ago at our recent Los Angeles outreach event, and I was somehow able to get her into the studio before she hopped on a plane out of town. So thank you, and welcome to the show, Anam. Hello. Hey. hey. I'm so excited to have you here. I was, uh, your your show will um, premiere right after Charlie's show. Uh, and uh, for those that listen to Charlie's show, right after we were done uh, with the interview, he was telling me that he knew somebody that was going to be at the event that I should talk to, that he thought would be an amazing interview, and that's you. And he was saying that he talks to you about, he has at least at different times talked to you about spirituality and what you think, and he's talking, he talked a lot about where he's at. I don't know how often you both have talked about it, but um, Charlie, for those of you who haven't listened to the show, is the executive director of The Life You Can Save, which is the charity, as I mentioned, that that I support and that, that Anam works for. Um, so how often do you talk to Charlie about uh, his spiritual uh, crisis? Or his spiritual, you know, thoughts. It's not a crisis, but he's in deep, he's in deep thought on the subject. Well, Charlie's a wonderful human being. I mean, he's the executive director of The Life You Can Save, but he's also family, you know. He's, he's, he's a wonderful human being. We speak pretty often about all kinds of topics. The thing about Charlie is he's a fairly open, honest person. Yes. So he, he's pretty forthcoming about his views on all kinds of things, including spirituality. So some wonderful conversations with him, yeah. Yeah, he is, in, his interview was beautiful, and he is, deeply an open and generous person. And I've, I've known him now for, hard to believe, but almost six years uh, I've known him. Um, how long have you been working at The Life You Can Save? I have been working for, I think, about seven months now, seven okay. to eight months, yeah. Right, I mean, you only recently graduated. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, so, you know, a year and a half ago or something like that. Um, is this the first job that you got after, or do you, is this the first, so this was the first charity that you, this is the first thing you moved into after you graduated? Yes, yes, it, How it is. How wonderful. Did you know about the life you can save while you were working at Princeton, or while I, you were studying at Princeton? Actually, no, while I was studying at Princeton, I wanted to go back to India and work in the government of India. Oh, wow. And, which is why I took, I took the flight back after Princeton and, and got back to India. Okay. But, uh, for various reasons, I decided I didn't want to work in, in, in the civil services, the Indian civil services. Um, and so I began to explore options outside of the government. I mean, the reason I wanted to work in the government initially was to create impact at scale, you know? Mm. And, um, when I decided not to work in the Indian civil services, I was trying to think of other ways I could do the same thing, create impact at scale. And, and I ended up 
meeting Charlie and hearing about the life you can save. And So impact at scale is a cool phrase. I've never heard that phrase said like that, but I, I imagine what that means is you want to impact the problem at the size of the problem, essentially. The problem is an enormous problem. You want to have an enormous impact. Is that sort of what that implies? Yeah, I mean, I think the idea is to sort of, again, like as opposed to sort of um, impacting one or two people at a time, you know, impact a large number of people and impact the problem, like you said, at, at its root. So it can have different kinds of meanings, you know, but but I think the idea is, again, scale and and, uh, and, and doing something meaningful with your life. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's beautiful. We're going to talk more about that mm-hmm. because we have a lot more time to talk. <laughs> um, but one tiny thing I wanted to, I picked off your uh, bio on the life you can save is that you love studying new languages. How many languages do you speak? Um, a few. Uh, I think about six to seven. That's not a few. A few is three. <laughs> six to seven is a lot. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Especially to an American who I, I'm like proud that I know a little bit of Spanish, uh, but I basically only speak English fluently. Um, so you speak six or seven languages. Can you list them? Yes. I mean, there are a few that are very interrelated. So for example, Hindi and Urdu are very closely related. There's- are those the two primary languages? languages throughout India? I'm I'm not entirely familiar with how many languages would be considered popular languages in India. You know, like how many like large scale language influence? We have a lot of languages in the hundreds, I'm I'm pretty sure. Wow. Are you kidding me? There are hundreds of, not just different dialects. No, no, different languages. Hundred different languages? Probably more. I mean, hundred would be like, I mean, I'm not sure of the number, but it's a lot of languages in the country. To get through your day, you need to know a few. So Hindi, uh, English. That is an amazing phrase. Just to get through your day, (laughs) you need to know a few different Indian native languages. Yes. (laughs) Now, there are a hundred... Some of them obviously would be shared by um, outside of India, Indians that are outside of India, or other people that speak the language. But you're saying there are hundreds that might just be regional or local languages just to India itself. Yeah, no, my guess is it's in the hundreds. I mean, I'm not sure of the exact number, but there are a lot of languages in our country. It is extraordinary to me. (laughs) Okay, I'm sorry. So Hindi, you said, is the largest. Yeah, so Hindi, English... Marathi and Gujarati are the Indian languages that I speak. Urdu is from Pakistan, which I speak as well because I come from a Muslim family. Okay. And so to read a lot of the texts, you need to know Urdu. Um, I know Spanish and I'm in the process of learning Arabic. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Were you ever, is your family from Pakistan? No, no. My family's from India. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So you just speak the language. Yes. Um, I'm so excited to have you on the show. So, uh, okay. Well, that's very cool. Um, you're also a theater lover. Did you, yes. did you perform? Yes, I did as a child. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, you were talking to me. Anam was so sweet. She brought me a book uh, as a gift. I, I just met Anam two days ago. Talk about talk about a lovely guest. She just brought me a book uh, that is on classical music in India, specifically about this artist. You're going to have to pronounce his name again. What's his name? Vilayat Khan. Vilayat Khan, <laughs> who is... A classical sitar player. So the book is about classical music in India, and it's it's just very lovely. And um, she uh, she began talking about how much she loves Bollywood. And I wonder if did you ever have dreams of becoming a an actor? Oh no no no! I was never. I mean, I love dancing, and I love 
enjoying Bollywood, but um, no, definitely not a Bollywood actor. No. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool. Okay, Anam. So this is the bulk of the show. Uh, we I always ask a really difficult question to start. What did you eat for breakfast this morning? I had half a piece of bread. That's it? Yeah. Did you put any butter on it or anything? There was like some kind of jelly mix, <laughs> I, I think. Half a piece of bread, is that normally how you eat? Do you eat yeah. a half a piece of bread to start the day? Is that kind yeah. of like a normal breakfast? That, that's about normal, yeah. <laughs> this morning, uh, I ate some leftover pasta from last night that I cooked for my son and I, and then I ate some of his mac and cheese, which he he demanded to eat this morning. That sounds uh, like a great breakfast. Yeah, <laughs> right, exactly, very healthy. <laughs> a cup Super of coffee. Super healthy, so awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is life as a dad. Um, uh, okay, Anam, actually, the, you know, as I told you before, the, the most important question that gets this interview started is how and when were you introduced to the idea of God in your life? That is, that's a good question. I mean, I don't even remember because I grew up with the idea of God in my life. It was probably at a very, very young age. I grew up in a Muslim family in an Islamic setup. So the idea of God very much, and I mean in Islam, Islam is not just, you know, um, Islam is for Muslims all over the world, not just a set of rituals, but a way of life. So it permeates into all aspects of life, eating, sleeping, you know, right before you eat, you say your prayer, there's a certain, there's a prayer you say at night before going to bed, there's, um, there are acts of kindness that you do in the course of your day. So I don't remember when that moment was when I was introduced to God, but it was probably at a very, very young age. And I think it's it was sort of more, it um, it kind of influenced all areas of my life because that's how Islam was practiced in my family and in the setup that I come from. Yeah, wow. So uh, I have some, you know, some familiarity with that. Uh, I was raised Catholic, as my listeners know, and my parents are very devout. So we were going to Mass a lot. I went to um, Catholic schooling. So we were talking about that in school, but you're talking about something deeper, you know, that there's, we weren't quite doing, I mean, I did say prayers before I went to bed and we'd say prayers before meals, but, uh, I do, I don't have any expert knowledge whatsoever of, um, the Islamic faith and rituals, which I'm so excited to learn more about from you, about what it was like growing up in, in your perspective of it. But, uh, it does, it, hearing you say that does feel like, it is a deeper um, permeation into the every moment of your life. Uh, and actually, I have some friend, I have one friend that's been on the show before who's Orthodox Jewish. And in that way, I feel it's somewhat comparable. He says prayers every morning when he gets up, gets up. He has, you know, they they have very, um, they have many uh, ho religious holidays throughout the year. They have many different um, weekly ceremonies and rituals. So, um, so how many siblings do you have? I have a younger brother. One younger brother. Yeah. And and um, one thing that you've mentioned to me outside of us um, recording is your the collectivism of India, the 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 collectivist culture that you grew up in. And so did you grow up in a house with one thing you referenced was having grandparents in the house, parents in the house, aunts and uncles maybe even in the house with you. Did you grow up in a house like that? Yeah, I grew up in a joint family. Grandparents were living in the house with us, mom, dad, my brother, me. And um, my my th that was my paternal grandparents who were living in, in the same house as I was. But right next door were my maternal grandparents and aunts and uncles also very close by. 
Wow. So it wow. was it was a big happy family with yeah. a lot of kids and a lot of a lot of people and chaos but a lot of love. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. And what does what did your father and mother do for um, their work? Did your mother work? So my mom's story is very inspiring. She actually oh, tell me, tell me. <laughs> she actually uh, she was married at a very young age. She actually wanted to continue her education, but you know because of um, because of the norms of the time she was she had to marry at a very young age and she actually had to leave her education midway to raise me and my brother but so she raised how me young was she she was i think about 17 or 18 when she got married yeah would that have been an arranged marriage of some sort i mean yes. is, is this somewhat of a uh Okay, so so was she did you, was she raised in a rural environment? Was she raised outside of the city, or is that just common even inside the city? No, it's common even inside the city. Okay. Yes. Uh, so she was married very young, and so she spent a lot of her time raising me and my brother. But what's really inspiring is after I went to college. So I, I told you I went to Princeton, and yes. that was me leaving India to come to the United States. She. Uh, ended up applying for this fellowship called Teach for India. So y'all have Teach for America in the United States. We yes. have we have Teach for India. And she got in. Wow. And so she spent two years as a fellow teaching in public schools. And now she's working for an organization helping children with disabilities. How amazing. It is really inspiring because she spent 20 years outside of, you know, the job market raising me and my brother. And she's taken that leap and she's thriving in her um, in her current role, working with kids with disabilities and doing all kinds of wonderful things. Wow, that's yeah. wonderful. And was she married to your father then at, at yes. 17? And then was how old was your father? My father was a few years older, so he was around 22, 23. Yeah. yeah. Wow, that is an amazing story. Wow, <laughs> congratulations to her. Uh, that must be really thrilling for her. Thank um, you. I'm I'm super proud of her. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. So, uh, okay, so she, and so what does your father do? My father is into real estate, but he's in the process currently of some kind of career transition. So he's exploring all kinds of things right now. Cool. Yeah, he's raised his kids. He's like, all right, I got to <laughs> figure out something else to do with my life. <laughs> I paid the bills. Now I'd like to do something that's a little more fun. What's he looking at? What does he, what does he love to do, your father? He loves... Well, like, if he could be anything, what do you think your father wishes he could be? If my father could be anything, oh my gosh, he he is a man of many talents. I mean, he would love to be a lawyer, I am sure. I think he would really love that. He's very good with it. He would also... He also likes playing the tabla, which is this this little instrument like a drum. I think he would probably be a tabla player as well. If do you he could. play that with your hands or with um, mallets? With your hands. With your hands. Yes. Okay, cool. Cool. Um... And uh, look, I'm just going to ask every question about Go your culture because I don't know enough. Go for uh, it. I mean, sitar, I know. That's about it. Um, Mumbai, I know. I've heard of. Uh, <laughs> I've never been to India. I've been, the closest I've been is um, Cam Cambodia, Laos, you know, Southeast Asia, but I haven't actually made it, uh, you know, around further across the continent to India, but I'd like to someday. Um, you, however, have traveled the world, right? I mean, where, where have you been? Tell me some of the, your favorite places that you've been. I mean, the world is so big, you know, even if you've traveled a little bit, there's still so much to see. Sure. Um, but I've traveled, uh, I've traveled a little bit in Europe. I've traveled in the Caucasus. I've traveled in the Middle East. Uh, Where in the Middle East? So in Oman, which is this, this country, uh, this small country. And then there's Jordan and Israel and Palestine. 
Yes. So the, oh, I was beautiful. actually, yeah, no, you were in really, Palestine. Yeah. Wow. So oh, were you working there? So I had actually gone as I mean, that's part, pretty heavy. No, it, it was. It's a very difficult part of the world, obviously. It, I mean, everywhere you mentioned is near something difficult when you're talking about the Middle East right now, but yeah. but Palestine is in particular. What were you doing there? So I had actually gone to Oman and Jordan to learn Arabic. Oman was very beautiful. I was in the desert living with the Bedouin tribal family. Wow. It was beautiful in the desert, in the middle of sand dunes, uh, learning Arabic. So I was in Palestine as part of this trip with the ex-U.S. ambassador to Israel. And the it, it was this delegation to understand conflict resolution. And so we spent some time in Israel and spent some time in Palestine. And we wow. met politicians. We went to the Knesset. We, we met, I think, the vice president of Palestine to understand. And, and we met NGOs and, and, and we met we met people on both sides of the conflict. And just to understand the conflict and to understand uh, ways of building peace and building bridges. And that, I think, was one of the most transformative experiences of my life. I mean, it was a lesson in empathy, you know. And also, also, uh, it really brought a lot of humility, um, just understanding, just hearing both sides and just seeing how much pain and suffering there was. So that was really... What are, a, what's, what are some of the things when you think about what you took away? When you say transformative, you think of a lesson. What are some of the... What are some of the the overpowering thoughts you took away from that experience? I think the the greatest lesson was, it was just a lesson in empathy, a, an important we, lesson in empathy. What because, taught you that? Yeah, go ahead. Because what we did was we didn't speak to just one side. We spoke to both, we, we spoke to people on both sides of the conflict. Mm -hmm. So we spoke to Israelis, we spoke to Palestinians, and we learned that, I mean, one thing that stood out to me was how different the narratives were on both sides of the mm. conflict, but also how real the suffering was. And so just to sort of go in into that kind of context with kindness and empathy without any judgment, without any preconceived notions, because you must understand that I grew up in a Muslim family, so I had heard a very specific viewpoint of that conflict. Mm. But here I was being exposed to the Israeli narrative as well. And then I was exposed to Palestinian na a Palestinian narrative. And then I was exposed to not just a Palestinian narrative, but different shades of the Palestinian narrative. Right. So dif different narratives within that community. And I think it was just eye-opening for me. And I think what it taught me was to just approach the world with more kindness and love and empathy because everyone has their story and humility because we don't know what someone else is going through. Uh, so that was, I think that was the key takeaway at, wow. at the end of that trip. Did you feel like, look, this is a lot of, I mean, uh, there are a lot of people analyzing this conflict from a lot of different angles. Did you feel uh, a certain sense of despair when you left or did you feel like if people could just sort of have more empathy, maybe there was a, a resolution there, but that empathy is so far away from the ability to understand each other at that level. Do you feel, was there a level of despair when you left? I think it was, I think there was a sense of, of, of despair, but there was also, it was mixed with a lot of hope as well. Mm. Because what really inspired me in that trip was the people on both sides who were still fighting for peace. Mm. 
So who, nice. who am I to despair like in the other end of the world when the people living that reality are still fighting for peace, are still waking up every day and fighting for a better, kinder world, a more loving world. So I think that gave me a lot of hope, uh, just meeting these people and, and hearing their stories. And they are inspiring. They are absolutely inspiring human beings. Well, that is so beautiful. This is a great place to take our first break. And uh, we'll be right back with Anam Vadgama. everyone we're back with Anam uh so Anam please tell me where whatever you'd like to tell me about what it was like growing up in the Muslim faith uh the Muslim obviously your perspective is being Muslim in India um so there are some things that you and I have talked a little bit about uh in the the brief conversations we had a couple of nights ago when we met but uh I don't want to prompt you with those things now. I kind of just want you to tell me, start telling me about your relationship to your faith. Did you love it as a child? Do you still love it? You know, we'll get to that stuff where we are today over time. But tell me, tell me how it began for you. So I think just at the outset, it's important to realize that, you know, Muslim communities around the world are so diverse, just like, you know, every other faith. Sure. And, um, there's no single, I, I would say there's no single experience of what being Muslim is, you know, because it's so different for every person, their relationship to faith. But for me in particular, a huge part of growing up was defined by by Islam because I grew up in a in a fairly religious Muslim family. I was introduced to the idea of God, to the idea of um to the idea of heaven and hell, to the to the idea of praying namaz, you know. So what was the last thing? Praying. Praying namaz. Namaz. What is namaz? So namaz or salat are the five times the the the, the prayers that Muslims pray. We have to pray them five times a day. Right. Right. Okay. So there's yes. fajr, zahar. I only asar. know some of the barest points of this, so you need to be you need to be forgiving as I ask you all of these questions. Oh my gosh, I am happy to answer all your okay. questions. Good, yes. good, 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 good. I have lots. <laughs> Okay, so please tell me more. So that you you tell them five times five times a day. Please continue, continue. So we so these are just basics of Islam. You right, know, you're, right. To, to be a good human being, to be kind, to be loving, uh, to believe in God that there is one God, and uh, we, as human beings, you know, we need to be kind to each other. Uh, so those were ideas that I grew up with, and that kind of permeated all aspects of my life. Like like I said, you know, eating, you say a little prayer before eating, you do acts of kindness throughout the day, you pray five times a day, and that means that that's a reminder, a, a daily reminder of, of the existence of God and, and sort of gratitude for life. Um, and, and a lot of humility too, because you bow down before before God five right. times a day, so you kind of realize. Do you do them at specific times every day, or is it before a specific activity? We, we we have specific times for each uh, for for each namaz. So fajr will be like early in the mornings, or will be somewhere in the afternoon. So there'll be specific times, and there there there'll be a calendar with what time. Wow! Each namaz right? Yeah, is. yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Everyone's got their calendars to like l- remind them. Okay, to the namaz today is at this time and this time and this time, and it changes depending on the time of the year. Yes. Okay. Yes. Cool. And then there was Ramzan. Are you familiar with Ramzan? Well, is that 
like would that also be called Ramadan? Yes, yes, by some Ramadan. people. Yes, yeah, yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, I know it as a kind of an Americanized way of saying that Ramadan, but uh, but yes, okay. So I know a little bit about it, but can could you tell me more? I mean, those were some of my most beautiful memories because you fast throughout the day, and um, so, so you don't eat from dawn till dusk. You know, you don't eat any food and you don't even drink any water. Right. Um, and the idea is to not even drinking any water. No water. Oh, no, wow. no water. Um, and I was a very competitive child. So at a very young age, I wanted to do all the fasts for the entire duration of the month. Uh-huh. <laughs> was, good, good, good. Because I was, I, I was fairly close to God as a child. So I would, at a very young age, I began to fast. And how, I, how many fasts, when you say fasts, uh, how many fasts are there in the month of Ramadan? The or? entire month. So every day. Yes. From sun up to sundown. Yes. Every single day for like 30 days? Yes. You don't eat or drink water? Yes. So you eat basically one meal a day? Well, you eat breakfast in the morning, so you wake up really early. You before, wake up really early yes. before the sun rises. Yes, and then you have dinner, and then you can eat after the sun sets. So, I mean... You, you so then people... There are some people that just eat all night long. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but that's <laughs> not like they good. Don't, they don't even sleep. They're like midnight ordering a pizza, and then at like 2 a.m. they order Chinese... I know some of them, yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's really great. That's great, yeah. But you you can imagine how beautiful that is because like when it's time for the fast to break, we have a feast laid out at right, home. You right, know, you are all so excited to just chug a glass of water yeah, yeah. and eat. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's amazing, it's amazing. But what, I mean, the point of that, you know, a lot of that fasting, at least the way I see it, is to build greater empathy for people who don't have what we take for granted. I mean, we take right. so much of having food at the table and having water for granted. It's 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 something we don't even think of. Wow. So I really like how that, at least that month, brings that sense of, you know, gratitude for, for what we have and greater sense of empathy for... Uh, and I think that's re- really important in... Pr- in promoting kindness. Yeah. So at least that's that's my experience of Well, Ramadan. that sounds beautiful. I'll be honest with you. I mean, sometimes I have these conversations and I and I um so I'm a person that is not afraid to pick up little things from other people's religions and cultures if I feel like it might be really fun. Uh I mentioned to you that I have a dear friend of mine who I've had on this show that talked to me about Shabbat. I've had a lot. I've had a number of people that are Jewish friends of mine talk to me about some of their cultural rituals, and there's something beautiful about the idea of turning off your phone and having no technology from, uh, you know, and only candles and things from from uh, sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday. And then here you're talking about Ramadan and 30 days of fasting from. So you get up early, which is just a good day, a good way to attack the day in a way. And, um, and am I right that you don't drink any alcohol, right? Is that, is that a cultural, is, am I wrong about that? Yeah, Muslims don't drink alcohol. They don't drink alcohol, yeah. right? Um, and so, uh, and so, but the idea of 30 days in a row, like I like to fast a little bit on my own, but I'm kind of getting into this idea. Like I kind of wonder if I would try that for a while just to feel what that ritual is. It sounds, it does sound like, it could be quite inspiring in some ways because you're you're putting yourself through you're putting your body through an interesting test and your mind is going to respond in that way do you still do you still do it yeah i still do it i mean i don't do it as as often as i'd like to 
but I still do it, yes. So you loved that then growing up. You loved these rituals. You were a competitor. You wanted to be the best at them. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, have you always, did you ever have a time period when you were being raised there, you started to wonder, oh, I don't know if I like this religion as much anymore, you oh, know? Yeah. yeah. When was that? I mean, this is a very, this was a very pivotal moment for me. Sure. What I'm about to tell you. But I think there was one particular incident that fundamentally changed my relationship to religion. And, and I think starting from that point onwards, you know, you know, you asked me when was I first introduced to God and, and I don't remember, sure. but, but the relation, the, the time, the moment where my relationship to religion changed is something that I remember very, very clearly. So mm. it all began. So have you heard of Bakrid or the, the, the festival where, um, Muslims sacrifice animals for God? It's, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with animal sacrificing and things like that and animals, I mean, certainly in a historical context, but also that you don't eat certain animals at this time and you, you do eat certain animals at this time. And, but I don't know what you're about to tell me, I don't think. So there is actually an equivalent story, I think, in other faiths as well. So you, you know the story of, I think, was it the prophet Abraham who was asked to sacrifice what was dearest to him. Right, sacrifice his son. Yes. He was asked to sacrifice his son Isaac. Yes. So um, we have we have the we have the equivalent story in Islam actually. God, I hope it's Isaac. I think it's Isaac. But that's <laughs> just me doubting myself. But um okay, I'll I'll make fun of myself later if I got it wrong. But he <laughs> he has a son and yeah, he and then God stops his hand. In in the in the, in the biblical story, um God stops his hand before he kills him but he does have the the impulse to do it so i believe in the islamic version of that god places or, or the angel places a sheep instead of the sun so he's willing to sacrifice what is dearest to him his son mm -hmm. but as he's about to sacrifice a sheep appears mm. so in commemoration of that day muslims all over the world sacrifice an animal uh on it doesn't have to be a sheep it could be any animal there are, there are, I mean, sheep, goat. I mean, I think there are some specific animals that okay. they sacrifice, and there are rules about what you can and what you can't. Um, so, so that's that's the day when Muslims around the world sacrifice an animal for God. Now, I had actually been part of this for many years, but this one particular year, I remember going to the goat vendors. You know, there are stalls where they sell goats, and for this purpose, for this purpose. And my parents had bought, you know, animals for sacrifice, but I had bought a little baby goat from from those dusty stalls, you know, in Mumbai. And I bought this little goat. And you can imagine the, the atmosphere. I mean, little stalls filled with goats and filled with animals. And, and I found this little baby goat that I wanted to raise. Mm. And so I... I bought this goat and I took it home with me and I told my parents I wanted to raise it. And I remember the first day of the Bakri came how along. How old are you? How old are you at this time? At this time, I was really young. I think I was probably seven or six, maybe. Okay, so very, you're very young and I'm, you're just a little 
you're a little girl that's fallen in love with a little goat and you, you're just buying a goat because you just want to raise a goat. You're not thinking at all about the rituals or customs of what's mm. possibly coming. Yes, I see this little goat and it walks up to me with its big eyes mm. and I fall in love and I want to, and I want to raise it and I want to protect it from, in fact, all the sacrifice. I, like I made a silent promise to protect I it, see, you know? I see, So I remember going back to my house and in fact, on the day of Bakrid, I mean, the, it was a baby, you know? To protect it, I took it in, in, in the house with me on my bed and, and I said, I don't want you to see what's happening. But a few years later, what happened was that when the goat grew up, my family actually sacrificed that goat for Bakrid. So you, did you, were you aware that they were going to do it or did they sort of surprise you? They surprised me. Did they, because they knew how much you loved it. I don't think they fully realized how attached I was to it. Wow. I think for them, the point was always to raise to raise the goat for sacrifice, for eventual sacrifice. And for me, it was it was my, you know, it 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 was like losing a loved one. Right. Yeah. Oh, it, it I can see the pain in your face yeah. as you talk about it. So, you were crushed, obviously, heartbroken. I was devastated. I. They didn't even tell you they were going to do it? I found out the day off, and I think I found out while, even maybe while it was done or when it was a little too late. Wow. I mean, it was, I think I would call that an, a seriously traumatic incident because you can imagine as a child, it's like losing a loved one. Right. And then to lose a loved one, at the hands of your own family. Right. It's one thing to have, like, your dog die, right? People have that experience, and it's very sad. But there's a lesson in that, which is that dogs get old, just like humans get old, and your parents get old, and your grandparents get old, and we die. But your but your family killed the, the thing. Yes. It, it was devastating. Ugh. I think I don't remember any single incident that has... that has been as profound or as pivotal as that incident and it might you know and it might seem it might seem really small but at least at that time for me it was it was devastating I remember being crushed spending days crying and crying and I think it is only in fact recently that I had that conversation with my family and we had a we we had a conversation about it and they asked for forgiveness because I don't think they fully realized. But what, what that incident did do for me at the time was just make me very angry at that religion. And I thought, how could a loving God, how, how could a loving God possibly ask me to kill or ask anybody to kill that innocent animal? I mean... For me, it was like my child. I had right. raised it, you know, as a child. Yes. Um, yes. And I began to question the religion, and my my preteen self, like as I grew older, was angry at the religion. I would I would refuse. I, I would have all kinds of arguments with my mom and dad about the religion. For for instance, about dressing, you know, or about. When you, when, when you have to pray the namaz, you have to remove nail polish. I would put the nail polish on and I was very rebellious at the time because I was angry. Mm. Um, but honestly, it was just a sense of confusion and, and 
and in a sense of a, a lost identity because I didn't know I didn't know what was going on I was I was confused I was lost I was devastated and I think that moment what it began for me was the process of I mean after all the anger subsided was the process of relearning the religion but also of questioning what I was told mm-hmm. so fast forward over the years what has happened is that because of that incident I have stopped really taking what everybody says in the name of Islam for I've stopped believing that you know I've stopped just taking it in without questioning it because um, people say a lot of things in the name of Islam and I think what that incident did for me was to just not believe every single thing that I hear mm-hmm. um, and I began to relearn the religion because you need to understand that I, I loved my religion as a child so for me being angry at my religion was was a period of immense turmoil because I did love my religion and I grew up in the faith so being angry at that being angry at the religion being angry at at, at my god you know who created me was not a very happy period for me no Be- i i i continue yeah, yeah i understand because i was young and i was confused and and so what happened was over the years i began to sort of relearn the religion and began to understand the religion and that has resulted in all kinds of wonderful things for me which i which i can speak to you about um it it began it instigated i think what what i tell everyone is it instigated this idea of critical thinking in me at a very young age because that's when i decided that i don't my religion is not what mom says or my religion is not what dad says or my religion is not what my my priest says let me learn my religion mm. you know and i began to actually understand the religion and of course eventually i did understand the significance of that festival i i did i did forgive my parents for for what happened i did understand the significance of that festival and i do understand why muslims all over the world you know celebrate that festival and and i understand the story and the idea of sacrificing to god something that is dear to you i, I do understand that now but i think over over a longer timeline what it has done is actually strengthen my relationship with religion because now i follow the religion not because not because someone has told me that this is islam this is what being muslim means but because i have read the texts and i have tried to understand the text and i have tried to make sense of it and so it's coming from from a place of of learning and understanding as opposed to blind following mm. but that process of critical thinking questioning and relearning the religion started when i was 6 and 7 wow. so that's that's what it's began it and set me yeah. on that path yeah <laughs> That's an extraordinary story. Thank you for sharing it. Thank you for sharing. I I obviously when I sit and I think I I'm not only am I just you know taken with your story because the story is a compelling and you know it's a heartbreaking story, it's a beautiful story. I try to think of myself, okay, when did I what are my moments? Did I have one moment or another? I'm not sure I had quite the same in the sense that I had one moment that lives above all. but but i have a similar understanding of 
being young and beginning to question and um it might have led me in a slightly different direction than my religion and we'll talk to you it sounds like you have you know as you said you, you've had a deeper sense of your relationship to islam and i cannot wait to hear more about all the beautiful things that you were talking about so we'll do that right after the break everyone we're back with anam um we just briefly talked at the end here just in the in the minute we took uh in between the break and she was just saying that that was a very hard story for her to tell but that she's excited to share all these other things that she wants to talk about what she's learned and where she's at with the religion today so please tell me tell me where it starts tell me tell me whatever you want to tell me about the the, the beginning of that process um you know, continue from where you left off as far as where are you with it today? I mean, where am I with it today? I still identify very much as a Muslim, a practicing Muslim. I believe in Islam. Actually, just uh, just a few months ago, I went to Umrah. I went, I went to Mecca to visit, uh, to, to perform the Umrah, which is wow. which is a pilgrimage. And is that the one where there's all those people, where there's so many people in the yeah. square, and they're and they're either walking around it, or they're or they're all they're all in in front of it from all sides. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a large. It's a large. It almost looks like an enormous stone. And there's is there writing on it? It's it's basically the direction in which all Muslims around the world face for prayer. Right, right. So yes. I, I went and performed the pilgrimage. It's it's. Uh, yeah, tell me about what that means. When you say it's a pilgrimage, do you start, do you walk from a certain place or how long is, what do you mean when you say pilgrimage? Is there an actual physical movement towards the thing? So there are basically two ways of doing a trip to Mecca. You could do the Umrah, which is what I did, or you could do the Hajj. Um, the Hajj is performed during very specific times of the year, which I couldn't make it for Hajj, but the Umrah could be performed anytime and it basically involves um so you go to so, so the idea is to visit is, is to visit um is, is to visit mecca and uh you go in with this i mean honestly just for our listeners and partly for me remind me exactly what mecca is so mecca is this city which it holds immense significance for for muslims because that was that's where the prophet is from, you know. It's it's where Islam originated from Mecca and Medina. So that's that's Mecca. It's it's in Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where the Kaaba is located. And the Kaaba is you'll notice Muslims pray. You know, they they bow their heads down in submission. The direction in which Muslims around the world face while doing these prayers is the is the Kaaba. Is wherever they are related to Saudi Arabia, to wherever they are. Yes. You know, yes. They're, they're basically like, okay, where am I in the world? Saudi Arabia is over there. Gotcha. Yes, and they'll face they'll face towards the Kaaba. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes, absolutely. Cool. So it's, it's really beautiful. It is beautiful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what's really cool about making this pilgrimage, the, the Umrah, is that everyone that you see, all the men, women, women have specific clothing that they need to wear, but all the men will wear a white piece of cloth. Hmm. And that's beautiful because you cannot tell. So it's it's an idea. It's the idea of equality before God. So you would be taking rounds. You know, you'd be 
walking around the Kaaba and there would be someone who was say very poor or very rich but you couldn't tell one from the other because they're both wearing the same white cloth yes, great. and you you can't wear earrings and you can't wear watches you know the idea is to really come up to to come to God as as a human in the spirit of equality so i really like that you know the the idea of just um appearing before god as a human being without any of these differences um which which was really nice for me to see you know you, you see all kinds of people all races all ethnicities from all around the world and it's it's a pretty profound experience so 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 that was the umrah that i did pretty pretty recently but but to your question of um to your question of how where i am at with the religion i think one thing that one thing that i struggle with and one thing that i've come a long way with with the religion is sort of the idea of uh and one thing that i i at least at some period i i was very confused about was the idea of women's rights in islam mm. so i think again i think the area where my relationship to religion has improved the most has been in this very the this deeper sense of learning about the religion and understanding what women's rights are in Islam because you'll see that that's a question that comes up pretty often yeah i mean it's a pretty it's a pretty leading topic right uh, for from certainly it's things that it's an easy thing to break the news cycles in in uh, the United States um but tell me a little bit more what do you feel like you've learned or help me understand what you're saying you've learned about it so i mean again this is my own interpretation and it's very specific sure. to you know my own journey in islam but i find the muslim woman in a very peculiar place kind of stuck between these two boxes this idea of the the idea of traditional islamic conservatives who kind of suppress women from within islam and ring fence women's issues and then the on the other side the idea of the western idea of feminism which pits itself in opposition to the quote unquote oppressed muslim woman mm-hmm. so i found the muslim woman to be in a very unique position both stuck between the the whole the idea of the traditional traditional views within islam but then which didn't quite promote women's rights very much and then this idea of this secular feminism which again did not promote women's rights in islam so for a woman who wants to identify as muslim but still wants still believes in women's rights and still believes in equality what does she do Right. What do you do? How do you handle that? That that that, that was a tough one because <laughs> I really struggled with that for some years. I mean, I I was I I mean my initial instinct was oh I want to distance myself from the religion and there were things I didn't agree with. But then I I I didn't quite fully identify with, you know, with I couldn't possibly not be Muslim. Mm. I loved being a Muslim. I loved Islam. I love Islam. So I had to find a way to balance these two. So I think one of the greatest things for me has been understanding women's rights in Islam and kind of which is again you know it's still a process that I am I I am part of. I'm still learning. It's it's a journey I currently am on. So I think that is one of the most uh Well, can you tell me 
so maybe maybe any a question to prompt you is like what's one thing about women's rights in Islam that maybe I wouldn't understand that you like uh and or you think is misunderstood um and that you're coming to understand better and what's something about like uh you know secular feminism that you don't think is something you're comfortable with or doesn't that you don't feel res gets on a base level like a respect for what you feel does that make sense yeah yeah um i think a good way to begin to understand where my interpretation of women's rights in islam is coming from is kind of going back to islamic theology and jurisprudence so in islam i think there are two concepts of interest here there is the idea of sharia and the mm -hmm. idea of fiqh so Sh sharia so in an american sense it's sh sharia law or sh yes. how do you pronounce it again yeah, sharia sharia yeah. and then what was the other thing you said fiqh how do you f i q h q h yes fiqh yes okay so sharia is basically the divine categorizations of of all human actions so sharia is law as god sent it right okay so according to sharia um all human actions are uh, divided into five categories i think it is uh recommended uh forbidden neutral discouraged and there's one more so, so basically, there there are five categories. Wow, interesting. Yeah, so it's actually interesting the word law used in this context because it's not strictly law. Because only the idea of, say, say, say two categories out of the five, prohibited and uh, enforced, strictly fall under the categorization of law. But discouraged, encouraged, and neutral are not really law. They're, they're sort of more in the ethical, moral... Right. 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 So, no, no, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. You yeah. have some, yeah, where you have, right, uh, allowed and not allowed. And then then there's encouraged and recommended. And so you're kind of getting, it's kind of like the rest of it is just like you're prompting one way or the other. Kind of yeah. like just trying to influence, like sort of just yeah. guide. Yeah, it's so a So there's guide. like, there's guidance, there's laws and guidance. Right. But there are five different parts of Sharia law. Yeah, I mean, this is just the rough categorization. Sure. I might have gotten the categorizations wrong. Right, but, but I mean, I'm getting basically the yeah, idea. Yeah, but, but the idea is basically that, so there's Sharia. But the, so the point that I'm trying to make is Sharia is uh, the law as God intended it to be, which is in, in the holy text of the Quran. But then the thing is that this law doesn't come in in a law form. You know, man has to kind of interpret what this law means. And... This idea of human interpretation of God's law is called fiqh. Mm. So, so that's the so and and the fundamental challenge of Islamic theology and jurisprudence is to bridge the gap between Sharia and fiqh. Mm. So, so fiqh is just man's understanding, and we can try our best to get close to Sharia, but we need to keep we need to keep trying. You know, it's a lot of years of interpretation have gone into it, but that's where I think my own idea of Islamic of women's rights in Islam steps in because Sharia is one, right? That's divine, that's infallible. But man's interpretation of this divine law is human. Mm. And there could be multiple interpretations of that divine law. 
And my personal sense is that for years and years, the holy texts of Islam have been only interpreted by men. Yes. I, <laughs> I mean, and not just Islam. I mean, you know, this is Christianity. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I don't... Uh, a lot of the things you say, there are corollaries for Christianity. So I don't, I don't want you to feel boxed in here as I'm sure you probably do sometimes being Muslim, especially in the United States, that you probably get occasionally some looks or some responses that maybe you don't feel are totally understanding. I don't want you to forget. I also understand that Christianity is a male dominated as the whole world has been male dominated yes, for thousands yes. of years. So anyway, but continue. You're, you're saying the fic has been... Sharia law has been in whatever has been viewed as the the the, the interpretation that categorizes as fiqh is male interpretation. Yes, yeah, so, so just basically whatever what what people I, I think the simple way of putting it is what people call Islam and what people understand in Islam has been defined by men for thousands and thousands of years. Right. And if women's voices have been completely left out, you know, that's a problem. No wonder that you know there are some interpretations that seem to favor men more that are more patriarchal sure. because because fifty percent of voices have not been included in in the conversation. Yes. And so when when that was an aha moment for me, you know, and realizing that I can interpret and uh, I mean not not I but like women can interpret. Well, yeah, you can and, interpret for yourself. Yes, and other women can interpret can, for themselves. For themselves, and and of course it takes a lot of training, but but there are. Scholars who are now beginning to in, to find more nuanced interpretations of the text of the Quran, and I can give you specific examples. These sure. are really fun. Good, so, so do they, it. That so, sounds great. Yeah, yeah. So, so there's the idea of polygamy, right? People talk a lot about polygamy in Islam. So I went back. I only basically know about polygamy mostly from Mormonism, but oh my um, gosh. <laughs> but no, okay, but go on. <laughs> but but you know, in the Middle East, there's this idea. Sure. So, and at that well, point, and this is not only Islam either. Um, in you know, this this goes back to just the old te what we would refer to as the Old Testament or the Torah um, has references of polygamy and all of this stuff, mm -hmm. which is again for those people that may not remember this, but Islam isn't is the Prophet Muhammad follows in the line of of prophets. Uh, out of the old, these kind of old texts, right? This is a, this, there are core similarities at a base level between these monotheistic religions. It's something that is, is well known, but maybe some people forget. But anyway, what you're saying is go back into polygamy as you were talking. Yes, about. yes. But so, so no, no, absolutely. You're right. And so the idea of polygamy, people say, oh, Islam promotes polygamy. So I actually went and I asked someone, um, about this and I began to learn what Islam really does say about polygamy because that's something I'm uncomfortable with, you know? Yeah. And so and most people, most yeah, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The idea that a man can marry four wives. Right. Uh, that's something that makes me deeply uncomfortable. Doesn't and feel I, particularly kind to the women. Absolutely not. And so <laughs> <laughs> I, I checked the, the, the text and I think what it said was, and I might have, and, and I need to brush up my memory a little bit, but I think what it said was that a man can marry up to four wives. Hmm. Line two, a man can marry up to four wives if he could be just to each wife. And line three, a man cannot be just to more than one wife. <gasps> the logical conclusion seems oh, to be... Oh, are you serious? Yes, yes. Wow, that, that was, is extraordinary. Yeah, that was an so aha moment for me. Yeah, so you're saying that that it's actually almost like a little joke that's built in. Oh my 
my it's gosh. like the, the writers are like, yeah, sure, you can marry four wives. Yeah. You can marry them if you're just to every single wife as one person should be to one other partner, loving partner. Here's the thing. There's no way you can do that to yeah. more than one. By the way, read to the end. Read to the end. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, wow. wow. Why do people miss that? You know, the fact that it's wow. discouraged or the fact, I think that was, was it the prophet's uh, son? The prophet actually discouraged his son-in-law who was married to his daughter, Fatima, from I, I think this is I, I think this is the story. I'm not sure. Actually, I'm just gonna take you at face value. There's okay. no way I'm gonna know. <laughs> uh, I think he actually discouraged him from marrying another wife while you know while his uh, while he was married to Fatima. I think I think that's okay. the story. Okay. So 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 that's one example, polygamy. The other example is this whole uh, this whole nonsense of women not being able to do jobs or women not being able to study or women not being able to work in Islam. Right, or drive a car. Or, yeah, right, there's all like kinds that. of crazy things out there. But the prophet's own wife, the prophet's wife, whom he loved, was actually his employer. Wow. She was his boss. <laughs> and <laughs> Wow. Yeah. And what do you mean? Like, tell me why. What, what job did he do and what did she hire him for? Do you remember? I am not sure of the whole context, but I do know that she was a very powerful woman. She was his employer and she was a wealthy businesswoman. Wow. That's what I know. And people seem to very conveniently miss that out. Sure. When they talk about women's rights in Islam, that the prophet. And when you say people, you mean the men. Yes, the men, the yes. men. But in fact, although it's a problem even with the women, you know, because sometimes wow. if you grow up in a setup where all you're told is this is Islam and this is the place of women, you'll find a lot of women growing up internalize that. Sure. And when How you could they know? Yeah, right. yeah. And so when you internalize that, you'll find that a lot of women as well have some of these ideas, which is really sad. But you can see where that's coming from if that's all you've heard and you've so deeply internalized it. It could be dangerous. Do you feel like then, is there a community for you and people like you in your generation or people of different generations that think in in the way or interpret the text in the way that you do do you, do you have are there female leaders uh, spiritual leaders in the faith that you can look to as examples uh guides in this world or are you and your generation some of the first generations to really engage with the text in this way at least in a public way or not necessarily public but in a way that you can live it in your life Right. So I think that is, I think since I'm just so new to this journey, because I have just started, I'm not really sure what the wider ecosystem is, you know, in, in terms of Islamic. And I even hesitate to call it Islamic feminism, because the word feminism is so loaded. You know, I, Sure, I, I, super loaded, right? It's yeah. gonna, you're going to have to be thinking about it in, in a kind of, yeah. at least I would be difficult to disassociate it from like an American feminist. Yeah, concept. so I, I'd say women's rights in Islam, you know? Sure. So so I'm not really sure, but I'm sure there is a community out there and there are people out there. I mean, me and my cousins, me and my friends, we do talk about this all the time and we engage in these conversations. But I, I do believe people need to be speaking more openly. But at the same point, you can see why there are real safety con reasons. Sure. I was going to ask, is, yeah. is, do you feel like in India, do you feel like the freedom to speak about your religion is a little, there's a little bit more safety there because the religion is not a national like nationally enforced religion yeah so i think it's a blessing to live in india yeah although not so much in recent times there's a lot of political turmoil currently sure yeah but uh but 
overall, India is a wonderful country to, to you know, there's free speech, there's democracy. Right. Um, so that's, I think, that really is a blessing. An enormous artistic culture there where you can yeah. have expression of, of yeah. a creative expression in a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very similar to, to many of the things that we cherish about the United States. There are many, I don't know India that well, but I know enough to know that the artistic culture of India is similar. I mean, you don't have to look any further than Bollywood to know <laughs> that there is an enormous creative culture there. But there, I, but sure, there are also I've heard stories of of different people who've because they're in a region of the yes. world where people, even if you're in India, you don't maybe have as many protections as you certainly would in the United States to be able to say some of the things that you want to say. Yeah, I mean, in India, at least the problem that I personally face is less in terms of safety, but more in terms of, you know, it's like I said, feeling stuck between a community that's very conservative, which is a lot of the traditional views, but then also the idea of Western feminism that doesn't quite get it, you know? Mm. So like this idea of balancing both, I am a strong supporter of equality and of women's rights, but I am also a a firm believer in Islam and I love being Muslim. So finding that middle ground is, I think, um, is I think a, ch a challenge. What do you think is the What do you think is one thing when you say like something that they don't fundamentally under feminist doesn't fundamentally understand about a women's what you would consider your women's rights in Islam? What's one thing that they don't understand? Can you give me like a more specific example about something that you that maybe doesn't sound doesn't sound kind of sexy to a feminist? Sexy is the wrong word. Uh, <laughs> attract, you know. I yeah, I, I meant yeah, to use no, like sexy in, 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 in an intellectual sense. Oh, I hear you, you know, I something hear that's you. something that's that's intriguing or really, really inspiring in a in a in an intellectual sense about the feminist movement that you actually don't think is that that you don't feel is something that they get about you. Yeah, I mean, I think feminism is again very diverse, and within feminism, there are so many different ways of you know, understanding feminism and and kind of defining feminism for yourself. But I mean, I think one really, the, the first thing that comes to my mind is that, you know, a feminist might, uh, and, and this might, and this is again a specific strand of feminism, might not get that, you know, maybe women in Islam want to wear the hijab. Mm. We love to like wear the hijab. I don't wear the hijab personally, but I have my family members who only wear the hijab and they love it and they don't feel oppressed at all. And then they have people come up to them and ask them, oh, you know, mm. in a sort of very condescending way, talk about the hijab, but they are they are fierce believers and they love to do that. Right. So that's the first thing that comes to my mind. You know, small things like that, they see the hijab as empowering. Right. And can you, can you tell me how, um, how is it empowering in a way that I, that we in our culture, just, we're not culturally aware of this concept enough to, to be able to understand it uh, from a truly empathetic point of view. What are we missing? What's empowering about it from a, from your parents' perspective or your or your family's perspective? What's something they love about it? That's a good question. So, I mean, I think one way of thinking about it would be that, and there are multiple ways in which it is empowering, but one way of thinking of it would be that, oh, you know, I love my God and I want to do everything I can to make sure God is happy with me. And if a, if a, if a little piece of cloth is what it takes, I'm going to do it because I, I can do anything to make my God happy. Mm. So... I feel good about the fact that I am I am doing something 
that my God wants me to do. Right, which is following a rule. Which is, which is, is this Sharia law? Would this also, is this a part of that kind of grouping of that? Or is this a part of a different set of laws? I mean, all acts are categorized. So I, I think it would fall under that. But it's, uh, again, it's subject to interpretation. Right, right. But there is also, is there a freedom? Is the, is the freedom partly in that, like, it's actually in the same way that, like, uh, as an actor, I'm not that famous, but, like, you want to go somewhere, you don't want somebody to talk to you? Is that is that kind of like you're wearing the hijab? It's like if you're a woman, you know, women in the United States, women all over the world, doesn't matter where you are, they're going to be ogled by men. Sometimes men in different cultures are uh, obnoxiously aggress aggressive or or demeaning to women, is there something, is there freedom in that? Because part of the deal is, is that because you can't be seen as well, yeah. your people can't be sitting there going, you know, look oh. at her, you know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of women in Islam find that to be a blessing that, you know, you can walk the streets without having that unwanted attention. I right, think a lot of women right. love that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that's a, that's another great example. Right. I've, know, I've always kind of wondered that there must be, because there's an element of like, sure, some women enjoy like walking down the street and basically like wearing bikinis, you know, down the street, especially we're in LA. Come on. Uh, men do, men walk down the street in bikinis too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but there's also an element of like sometimes it doesn't matter if you're male or female. Sometimes you just don't want to be seen. So sometimes, you know, what one thing is, is you wear sunglasses and hats and heavy coats. Yeah. And we, that's not a hijab, but, you know, kind of does the same thing in a way. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the hijab is after all what? It's a piece of cloth. Mm -hmm. That is what it is. Mm. And I think the significance that it holds to different people is very personal. In your family, then you have a choice in India whether or not you have to wear it. Right? Yes, at least in my family, yeah. yes, we do have a yeah. choice, yes. Yeah. This is such great stuff. Okay, so one thing, um, because we're kind of, because I love this conversation so much, I've let this go over time a little bit, but I have to say this because this is like the thing that we talked about first when I met you the other night, and I think it's a good it's a good time for me to, to let you talk a little bit about it, is speaking more about your Indian culture, one of the things I found really extraordinary was you all, you and your friends celebrate your religions together. Oh my so gosh, yes. You, you were telling me that you have gone to Christmas Mass. I have. Every year, right? A Didn't lot you say of years, almost a every lot of Like years, you can say yes. all the prayers. Yes, yes, I can. Like you can say the Our Father and you can say, yes, I can. you know, all these things like the Hail Marys can. and things like that. Yes, I can. That's amazing, right? It is, right? Oh, it's extraordinary <laughs> to me when you told me this. And then you have friends that are Christians that will go through Ramadan with you. Yes. I think one of the beautiful, I think another blessing of growing up in Mumbai and especially in the community and the school that I grew up in is that it's very, um, I think one challenge that I had when I, I, I studied, so I grew up all my life in India and then I came to Princeton for my undergrad, right? Okay. And it was my first time in the United States. And one of one difference that I saw was for religious celebrations, families would retire to their own, you know, to, right, to their yeah, own family yeah. circles and celebrate it. But it wouldn't sort of be a joint celebration of different religious communities celebrating each other's religious days. Right. As opposed to, it, it was more a family affair. As opposed to in India, what I've found, at least in my community, and this is very probably something that I am very, very lucky to have, my friends who are, uh, my friends who are Hindu, I go to their houses 
for Diwali, for Ganesh Chaturthi. I do the prayers with them. How cool. I hope Anu is listening to this. Anu is a good friend of mine. I was recently at her house oh, for, wow. <laughs> for Diwali. She's um, in Mumbai? She's in Mumbai oh, right wow. now. Uh, she comes. If she to, ever comes to LA, tell her to come in here. I want to interview her. Maybe I, I'll come to Mumbai. I think you should. Okay. You would have a blast. <laughs> I can't wait. Someday. It's Someday my wife and I will travel to Mumbai. And my son maybe too. We'll all come. And then you and then you can show us around. Oh, I can't wait. It's it's a done deal. You okay. must come. It's okay. beautiful. Oh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, so yes, I hope your friend is listening. She you know, you will just have to you'll just whatever, just email it to her when it happens. I will. So she is so I was at her house recently. She comes to my house for Ramzan. Um, in some cases, some of my friends have actually fasted, so done the done the fast from dawn to dusk with me in solidarity. Right. Just in solidarity because they said, hey, you're doing this, you know, we, we want to show our solidarity with you. Right. For Christmas, I go It's kind of a jerk thing to like meet me for lunch <laughs> while you can't. Like, come on, I got to go get lunch. Oh, I'm sorry. You can't do it. Oh. But I'm going to have a, I'm going to have like a, you know, a nice, whatever, a nice omelet or something. And you're like sitting there. You can't even oh, have no. a glass of water. That's not a good friend. I get it. <laughs> okay, cool. So I have friends who've actually fasted with me for Christmas. I've been to for Mass on Christmas Eve. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, so I can say all the prayers as well. I feel right at home in the church. Wow. So I think it's pretty nice to be in, to grow up in a You community. went to a Catholic school? I, I went to a Catholic school. Because you have an extraordinary relationship to religion. It's really amazing. It's fantastic. So your parents put you in a Catholic school? And that's very normal in Mumbai. Wow. So in our, um, in our class, in fact, we had more Hindus and Muslims in the classroom than Catholics, and it was a Catholic school. And they taught you, Catholic, they would teach you religion class, right? You'd have a religion class, they, wouldn't you? We had a religion, like a, 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 a Christian Catholic religion. Class. Actually, no. We had a moral science lesson where they taught us things like be kind, but we we weren't taught we we weren't taught to be Christian. I mean, the the, the Catholics in in this in that class would be taken to a separate uh, to, to a separate class where they would actually learn about what being a good Catholic means. But for the rest of us, the majority of us were Hindus and Muslims. We just learned all about being a good human being. And, and were you but you were taught by priests and nuns and things or some I mean there were priests and nuns in the school yeah and yes yeah, some of the nuns did teach our moral science lesson which was about being a good human being which was phenomenal I mean when I think about my school life it's amazing how my own school encouraged this to this tolerance for different religions and acceptance because in our school we actually celebrated fest even though it was a catholic school the catholic school celebrated different religious festivals so they celebrated Diwali that. they celebrate oh it was wonderful yeah yeah now, now that I remember the school was wonderful in fostering that kind of uh, that that accepting culture where you just celebrate each other and you celebrate your differences so that was that was life in Mumbai oh man that is so cool thank you uh, so cool on um <clears throat> I I mean it's it's gone like 10 minutes over where I would normally stop the show I really should stop it but I have so loved talking to you and your perspective is one that I, I just almost never get to hear. And I do this show because I love hearing these stories and love hearing these perspectives. And I so appreciate you being so generous about telling me about your journey with it and kind of just like illuminating me to what life is like in a different part of the world, a different way that we can think about religion. Because I do, I do believe that you are accurate when you talk about the stratification of families and religion. You know, when re 
families will go do their thing. And there is a, and again, I know you're not speaking for your religion across the board. We all don't, yes. no one has to be educated as you're listening to this, that there are, are extreme versions of your religion that, that don't, it wouldn't necessarily agree maybe with the, some of the ways you're speaking Absolutely, about this. Absolutely, yes. But what you're talking about is that there is, there are, there are locations in the world where that are just extraordinary and different and they have something really exceptional about it and i think that there are these things in the united states too and each person gets to choose their way to it but uh, i love it i love incorporating i love learning about religion i love speaking to people that can give me new ways of thinking about it so thank you so much thank you for listening oh my gosh uh hey wait a second that's what i say at the end <laughs> um so i'll just say it right now thank you all for listening a beautiful day today yeah LA is beautiful I mean I love the city yeah it's so nice and so friendly yesterday oh my gosh I had the strangest coincidence I was uh, I had gone to a coffee shop to get my coffee and someone was getting coffee from the same coffee shop and he was telling the barista lady how he's just come back from India and I said oh my gosh you went to India I'm from India I was excited you know yeah, I yeah, heard yeah. India like randomly in LA of course and then he invited me to a concert where I met someone about do you know some guy called Josh Henderson? No, do, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything because yeah. I I'm like almost not at all paying attention to what's going on so some in like, art anymore right so now. So he, he's like so he, there was like a concert and I went for that and it was really nice meeting wow. the band and the, and it was just beautiful. How I fun! Went, what was the venue? Do you remember the venue? Maybe uh, I know the venue. Hotel Cafe. Ho hotel Cafe. Yeah, hotel. That's hotel a classic. Cafe. That's yeah, a classic yeah, venue. Really, I've been there really nice, tons yeah. of times. Yeah, but like I literally met someone at a coffee shop and like I had a great evening at a That's concert amazing. and like I got to meet uh, the the band and the performer and they were all really talented so that was really nice oh that's so great at least my first impressions of LA are super super friendly city oh good yeah, yeah. well I love LA yeah. it has in times it's gotten a bad rap but I, I think it's fantastic I love the city and there are lots of wonderful people from here. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, Anam, I'm gonna I'm gonna dive in. If I mess up, I'm gonna make myself start over. Okay. Mm -hmm. <clears throat>